Some arguments for Islam take quite a bit of time to refute simply because there's often a lot of data to sift through. The argument from biblical prophecy was like this. Uh, the argument from scientific accuracy was like this as well. But some arguments for Islam are so incredibly weak, they can be refuted rather quickly. In this lecture, we're going to uh, take a look at five such arguments. The argument from miracles, Muhammad performed miracles. The argument from fulfilled predictions, Muhammad was able to predict the future. The argument from historical accuracy, Muhammad had uh, miraculous uh, knowledge of the past. The argument from rapid growth, Islam spread so rapidly it must be from God. And the argument from numerical signs, there are so many 19s in the Quran, it must be the word of God. Uh, this, I'm sad to say, is the bottom of the barrel, but Muslims still use these arguments, so we'll examine them. Muslims argue that Muhammad performed miracles. In the Muslim sources, we read about water spouting from Muhammad's fingers, food being multiplied in Muhammad's hand, uh, rocks saluting Muhammad, and so on. There are two main problems with this argument. First, the written sources for the miracles are extremely late. Uh, Ibn Ishaq, our earliest uh, detailed source, is from more than a century after Muhammad's time. The main sources Muslims use, uh, such as Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, were written more than two centuries after the time uh, of Muhammad, after the events they report. Now, could Muslims during this time have invented uh, stories about Muhammad performing miracles? Of course they could. Indeed, we know that, Mah that Muslims had a very good reason to invent such stories. During the early spread of Islam, Muslims constantly encountered uh, Christians and Jews, and the first, the first question these Christians and Jews would ask was, what sort of miracles did your prophet perform? And the early answer would have been, well, he gave us the Quran. But for Christians and Jews... Um, that didn't seem like a miracle. They were used to Moses parting the Red Sea or Jesus uh, healing people or raising the dead or walking on water. And so to offer a book as supernatural um, confirmation just wasn't persuasive to Christians and Jews. So Muslims certainly had a good reason to invent these stories since they wanted to spread their religion. And given the, date, the late date of Muslim sources, there's simply no way we can trust them when we know there was a clear motivation uh, to invent stories. Uh, to put this in perspective, how many Christians would appeal to third century texts as evidence that Jesus performed miracles? I've never seen any Christian appeal to third century texts as evidence for Jesus. No, we go back to first century texts. Unfortunately, um, Muslims don't have these kind of texts. Um, so, for uh, Muslims who want to confirm the prophethood of Muhammad, there's simply no way to make a convincing claim for their case. They don't have any early uh, detailed data. The next problem is that the Quran indicates that Muhammad couldn't perform miracles. Let's look at a few passages here. Surah 6, 37. And they say, Why has not a sign been sent down to him from his Lord? Say, Surely Allah is able to send down a sign, but most of them do not know. Surah 10.20 And they say, Why is not a sign sent to him from his Lord? Say, The unseen is only for Allah, therefore wait. Surely I too, with you, am of those who wait. 
Surah 11:12. Then it may be that you will give up part of what is revealed to you, and your breast will become straightened by it, because they say, Why has not a treasure been sent down upon him, or an angel come with him? You are only a warner, and Allah is custodian over all things. Surah 13:7. And those who disbelieve say, Why has not a sign been sent down upon him from his Lord? You are only a warner, and there is a guide for every people. Surah 13:27. And those who disbelieve say, Why is not a sign sent down upon him by his Lord? Say, Surely Allah makes him who will go astray and guides to himself those who turn to him. Surah 17:59. And nothing could have hindered us that we should send signs except that the ancients rejected them. And we gave to Samud the she-camel a manifest sign, but on her account they did injustice, and we do not send signs but to make men fear. If you'd like to examine some more passages showing that Muhammad didn't perform miracles, see Surah 2, 118 through 119, Surah 6, 109, Surah 17, 88 through 94, Surah 28, 47 through 48, and Surah 29, 47 through 51. Over and over and over again, people asked Muhammad, why couldn't he perform miracles? And over and over again, the response was that he's only a warner and that his miracle was the Quran. Now, if Muhammad had been performing miracles all along, as Muslims often claim, we would expect a very different response if Muhammad's challenged. People would say, why can't Muhammad perform miracles? And the response would be, what are you talking about? Muhammad is performing miracles all the time. But that's not the response we get. So the Quran indicates that Muhammad's only miracle was the Quran. The only way to argue around this would be for Muslims to show that the Quran does offer evidence of miracles performed by Muhammad. And here, only two passages in the Quran can be appealed to by Muslims. In Surah 17.1, we read, Glory be to him who made his servant to go on a night from the sacred mosque to the remote mosque, of which we have blessed the precincts, so that we may show to him some of our signs. Surely he is the hearing, seeing. Muslims believe that this refers to Muhammad's uh, night journey, where he was miraculously taken to Jerusalem one night, riding a mythical winged beast named Barak. The problem with this is that according to Muhammad's wife Aisha, Muhammad was in bed the entire time. He never left. He wasn't actually physically taken anywhere. Uh, In Ibn Asak, Aisha says, The apostle's body remained where it was, but God removed his spirit by night. So this was something spiritual, and at best Muslims can say that Muhammad was given some sort of vision, but uh, visions uh, don't qualify in the same way that miracles qualify, uh, because we can't verify them. How do we know that this wasn't simply a dream? So this certainly isn't any evidence that Muhammad was performing miracles, especially when when the Quran denies repeatedly that Muhammad was given such signs. Now, the only other passage Muslims can point to in the Quran is Surah 54, 1 through 2, which says this, The hour of judgment is nigh, and the moon is cleft asunder. But if they see a sign, they turn away and say, This is but transient magic. Muslims claim that this passage refers to Muhammad's splitting of the moon. There are several problems with this claim. Uh, One, the passage says nothing about Muhammad having anything to do with any splitting of the moon. 
Two, the passage says nothing about this being any kind of confirmation of Muhammad's prophethood. Three, some Muslim commentators believe that this passage refers to a sign of the end times. Yusuf Ali offers several possible interpretations of this passage, one of which is this. The prophetic past tense indicates the future, the cleaving asunder of the moon being a sign of the judgment approaching. So there's no way that this could be something that happened in, uh, that judgment day was happening in the 13th century. For the only reason Muslims believe that this refers to Muhammad miraculously splitting the moon is that they're reading it through the lens of traditions that came much later. Taken on its own, we would never conclude that this has anything to do with Muhammad performing a miracle. Five, the Quran seems to be unanimous in admitting that Muhammad couldn't perform miracles, and so if this says he did, that would be a contradiction. Muslims don't believe that there are any contradictions. Six, in Surah 1327 and 1790 through 94, the unbelievers ask why Muhammad hasn't been given a sign. Both of these surahs were written after Surah 54. So if Muhammad had really split the moon in, during the time of Surah 54, why would people be asking later on, why hasn't Muhammad been given a sign? Seven, if Muhammad had really split the moon, people across that side of the planet would have been able to see it. People were interested in astrology back then, and people, cook, uh, people kept records of strange phenomena, yet no one recorded anything about a moon splitting. So can we say that we have good evidence here that Muhammad performed a miracle? Of course not. Uh, but then we're left with two facts. The fact that the Quran denies Muhammad performed miracles and the fact that the only sources that say otherwise are very late, written during a time when Muslims were constantly being challenged by Christians and Jews to show that Muhammad performed miracles. So the argument for miracles fails until Muslims come up with much earlier sources and uh, much better evidence. The next argument we can evaluate is the argument from fulfilled predictions. Uh, according to this argument, Muhammad was able to accurately predict the future, and this shows that he was a prophet. Now, if we've learned anything from Nostradamus, we've learned that people can see what they want to see when they uh, look for confirmation in these uh, sorts of predictions. Nostradamus' admirers will tell us that he predicted the French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon and Hitler, that he predicted the fire of London and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that he predicted both world wars and the Apollo moon landings. We don't have anything this impressive from Muhammad, so if Muslims are going to be consistent, they should believe that Nostradamus was a prophet as well. But let's take a look at some of Muhammad's predictions. The most famous example comes from the Quran. Surah 32-4 reads, The Roman Empire has been defeated in a land close by, but they, even after this defeat of theirs, will soon be victorious within a few years. So the Romans were defeated in battle, but Muhammad predicted that within several years, the Romans would be victorious in a battle. Now, I'm not sure we can say that this definitely goes back to the time of Muhammad, since the Quran was compiled long after the Romans had regrouped and won some battles. But let's grant that Muhammad correctly predicted that the Romans would eventually win a victory. Would it have taken a prophet to say this? The Roman Empire was extremely powerful. The Romans and Persians went back and forth in their battles. 
The Quran doesn't even tell us who the Romans were going to defeat. So the prophecy says, in effect, that the Romans would beat someone in some battle sometime within the next several years. Again, does this does this have to does this require divine revelation? I don't see that it does. Now, suppose that I claim to be a prophet, and uh, next year the United States loses a battle somewhere in the world. And suppose I say, the United States has been defeated, but soon they will win a battle. Would we be amazed if that prediction came true? Not at all. I would be shocked if that claim didn't come true. So the fact that this is Islam's best example of an accurate prediction by Muhammad shows how desperate Muslims are to find evidence for their prophet. There's only one more prediction of Muhammad's that's even remotely interesting. In Sahih al-Bukhari 71.18, Muhammad says this, The hour will not be established till a fire will come out of the land of Hijaz. Muslims claim that this uh, prediction was fulfilled more than six centuries later when there was a volcanic eruption in the area, of, uh, in the area called Hijaz. There are several problems with this claim. One, Muhammad refers to the hour of judgment being established. So in context, it sounds like Muhammad is talking about judgment day, which certainly didn't come to pass in the 13th century. Uh, Muhammad listed many signs of the judgment to come, including his prediction in al-Bukhari 7121 that the sun will start rising in the west. Muhammad even talked about other fires in other areas as signs of the judgment. So I'm not sure this could be referring to a volcanic eruption. Two, it's not surprising that given several centuries, some sort of big fire would eventually occur in the Hejaz. In other words, uh, suppose I say uh, that at some point in the future, there's going to be a big fire in California. What are the odds? I'd say close to 100%. So there's nothing miraculous here. Three, Muhammad made all sorts of predictions, uh, many of them quite general, and it's no surprise that some of these will eventually come to pass. For instance, suppose I declare again that I'm a prophet, and I say that one of my fathers will, one of my followers will eventually play the guitar. And time goes by, several years, several centuries, and eventually one of my followers plays the guitar. Would this be surprising? Hardly. The point is that if a prophet says enough things, some of them are going to happen uh, strictly by chance. Muhammad said a ton of things, so some of them eventually happen, and those that don't happen, well, they're still somewhere in the future. Four, Muhammad predicted things that just didn't come to pass. Indeed, Muhammad predicted things that can't possibly come to pass anymore. For instance, in Al-Bukhari 71.19, Muhammad said that soon after his time, a mountain of gold would be found under the river Euphrates. Never happened. In Al-Bukhari 71.15, Muhammad said this, The hour will not be established till the buttocks of the women of the tribe of Daus move while going round Dhul Kalasa. The problem here is that the tribe of Daus doesn't exist anymore, and Dhul Kalasa was destroyed a long time ago. So this prediction can't possibly be fulfilled, unless someone invents a time machine and brings back the building and brings back the tribe. Sahih Muslim number 7051, we find out that uh, the end would come within someone's lifetime. Uh, Muhammad was asked about when the last hour would come says he had in his presence a young boy of the Ansar who was called Muhammad. 
Allah's messenger said, If this young boy lives, he may not grow old until he will see the last hour coming to you. So this would have, the end would come if this child lives into adulthood, lives to be an old man, it would come in the lifetime of this child. It didn't. So these prophecies didn't come true, and now they just can't come true. The time has expired. So why don't Muslims claim that Muhammad was a false prophet based on his failed predictions? Now, we could continue examining Muslim claims that Muhammad accurately predicted the future. But there's a much easier way to defeat these claims. Muhammad himself denied the value of fulfilled predictions. He declared that predictions about the future, even if they come true, don't count as evidence of prophethood or reliability. In Sahih al-Bukhari 5762, we read, Some people asked Allah's messenger about the foretellers, the people who predicted the future. He said, they are nothing. They said, oh, Allah's messenger, sometimes they tell us of a thing that turns out to be true. So sometimes these people are telling us accurate things about the future. Allah's messenger said, a jinn snatches that true word and pours it into the ear of his friend, the foreteller, as one puts something into a bottle. The foreteller then mixes that word with 100 lies. Think about this. Muhammad's followers come to him and say, hey, there are people over there, and they are accurately predicting the future. Shouldn't we believe what they say on other things? Muhammad says no, because they could be getting this from a jinn. A jinn could go up, hear something from the angels, or hear something from God, and then come down and tell this information to their friends, the foretellers. So according to Muhammad, these fulfilled predictions, these things that these people were saying that were coming true, didn't count as any evidence that these people were, were reliable. They don't prove anything. Given Muhammad's words here, it's amazing to think that Muslims would appeal to fulfilled predictions as proof of Islam. Uh, thus, in the name of consistency, uh, we must reject uh, any argument from Muslims that's based on fulfilled predictions. If Muslims want us to base our belief in Islam on fulfilled predictions, they first have to prove that Muhammad was wrong when he said that predictions don't count as evidence of reliability. And why would Muslims want to show that Muhammad was wrong? So this argument fails. But Muslims don't just argue that Muhammad had miraculous knowledge of the future. They also argue that he had miraculous knowledge of the past. This is the argument from historical accuracy. We can know that Muhammad was a prophet because he knew things about history that just couldn't have, uh, he couldn't have known unless they had been revealed to him by God. Let's look at a few examples from uh, one Muslim apologist. Surah 89, 6-7 reads, Seest thou not how thy Lord dealt with the, the people of Ad, of the city of Iram, with lofty pillars, the like of which were not produced in all the land? Mazar Kazi comments as follows. The commentators of the Quran state that Ad Iram refers to an earlier tribe of the people of Ad known as Ad Ula, or the former Ad. They were totally unknown to ancient Arab historians. The Quran, for the first time, mentioned them as Ad Iran, i.e. the tribe of Ad that lived in the city of Iran. The National Geography issue of December 1978 gave an interesting account of an ancient city called Elba, which was excavated in Syria in 1973. 
The city was found to be 43 centuries old. The magazine also stated that this city had a library which had a record of all the cities with which the people of Elba did business. Strange enough, there on the list of cities was the name of a city called Iram. How could Muhammad in the 6th century have gained the knowledge of a city which was 43 centuries old and which was discovered by archaeologists as recently as 1973, unless Allah gave this information to him? Now, this sounds somewhat impressive, doesn't it? The Quran talks about a city named Iram, which was thousands of years old and wasn't discovered until 1973. How could Muhammad have known this? Well, there are two main problems here. First, the Quran says, Don't you see how your Lord dealt with the people of Iram? This presupposes that the people in Muhammad's time were already familiar with the story of Iram. They knew about it. Second, we know from Muslim sources that other people were talking about Iram at the time of Muhammad. According to Ibn Ishaq, the Jews around Muhammad's time were saying, quote, We shall follow him and kill you by his aid as Ad and Iram perished. Now, how in the name of common sense can Muslim apologists claim that Muhammad's comment about a city named Iram proves that he was a prophet when everyone else in his time seems to know about this city? I could just as reasonably argue that I'm a prophet because I know about a city named Paris. Along these same lines, a few pages later in Kazi's book, he mentions Surah 29, 33-35, which talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Kazi says that Muhammad could only have known about these cities. He could only have known about Sodom and Gomorrah if God revealed it to him. So let me get this straight. There were Jews and Christians all over Arabia, and Muhammad talked to them. Uh, their stories were common knowledge, and both Jews and Christians passed around stories about Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Muslim apologists expect us to believe that the only possible source for Muhammad's knowledge of Sodom and Gomorrah was Allah. Once again, this shows how desperate Muslims are. I'd like to spend a moment addressing one more example since uh, I've seen several Muslim apologists using this argument and I don't see why. Kazi gives the following translation of Surah 1092. We will now save your dead body only to be a sign of warning to succeeding generations, though there are many who give no heed to our signs. Kazi comments as follows. This verse refers to the body of Pharaoh Minapath, who was drowned while pursuing the prophet Moses. Allah's peace be upon him. Archaeologists have now identified his body. It is now lying in a Cairo museum as an open miracle of the Quran for those who pay heed to the signs of Allah. It should be noted that the Bible also states that Pharaoh was engulfed in the sea, but does not give any information as to what subsequently became of his body. The fact that the Quran says that Pharaoh's body was preserved as a sign for succeeding generations and that the Bible does not mention this is a clear testimony that Muhammad did not copy the Quran from the Bible and that the source of his knowledge was the divine revelation from the all-knowing Allah. Once again, there are a bunch of problems with this claim. To begin, let's look at the translation. We will now save your dead body. Notice that in this translation, it's Pharaoh's body that will be preserved, which sounds like mummification. 
But how do scholars who aren't trying to come up with some kind of evidence translate this? The three main English translations all give a quite different picture. Pickthall's version reads, But this day we save thee in thy body, that thou mayest be a portent to those after thee. Lo, most of mankind are heedless of our portents. Yusuf Ali's translation, This day shall we save thee in thy body, that thou mayest be a sign to those who come after thee. But verily many among mankind are heedless of our signs. And Mate Shakir's translation, But we will this day deliver you with your body, that you may be assigned to those after you. And most surely the majority of people are heedless of our communications. In these translations and in the Arabic, it is Pharaoh who will be saved. Pharaoh, according to Islam, repented when the waters came upon him. This verse says that God will deliver him, not simply in spirit, but in his body. The sign for unbelievers that this verse refers to is that he would be miraculously saved from drowning. This has nothing to do with his body being mummified. That's the only reasonable interpretation of the text. However, for the sake of argument, let's grant Kazi's mistranslation and see how far it gets him. Even if we grant his interpretation of 1092, the idea that uh, Merneptah was the pharaoh of the Exodus is very problematic. True, Merneptah is often put forward as one of the candidates, uh, but certain problems make his presence in uh, in Exodus unlikely. First, though the exact dating of Merneptah's reign varies by a decade or two depending on the source, it's common to date his rule at around 1213 to 1203 BC. But this isn't going to work. Many Christians and Jewish, many Christian and Jewish scholars place the Exodus in the 15th century BC, centuries before Merneptah's reign. Uh, Using this date, Merneptah would have ruled during the same time of the judges in Israel, uh, long after the Exodus. Second, we have a few archaeological artifacts from the time of Merneptah, and one of them indicates that Israel was already in Palestine by the middle of Merneptah's reign, lending further support to the view that he ruled during the time of judges, not during the Exodus. The stele of Merneptah is an artifact that celebrates his plundering of the land of Canaan. It says... Israel is desolated, his seed is not. Palestine is become a widow for Egypt. Here we read Merneptah's proclamation that he had desolated Israel in the land of Palestine. Since the Muslim view requires that the Israelites hadn't even left Egypt at the time of this writing, their presence in Palestine is very odd. Did they have a time machine? Third, Merneptah was around 60 years old when he came to the throne. He died at age 72. He also suffered from a number of health problems. According to the Encyclopedia of Ancient Egypt, Merneptah was bald, corpulent, and stood 5 feet 7 inches tall. The mummy shows signs of calcification of the arteries as well as arthritis. So in order to accept the Muslim argument, we have to believe that a 72-year-old king suffering from arthritis and hardened arteries personally went after the Jews rather than simply sending his army and best generals. But let's suppose that Merneptah really did lead the fight against Israel and that the exodus occurred in 1203 B.C. rather than in the 15th century B.C. and that there were two nations called Israel, one already in Palestine and another on its way to Palestine. This is what we have to believe if we want to accept the Muslim argument. 
even if we grant all of this, along with the creative translation of Surah 1092, would Muhammad's statement that Pharaoh's body would be preserved qualify as a miracle? Would there be no other reasonable explanation? Couldn't Muhammad have heard an old translation an old tra- uh, of a tradition saying that the body of Pharaoh uh, had been mummified? Couldn't the Egyptians have recorded the events? Even if there was no direct knowledge of the Pharaoh of the Exodus, the fact that the Egyptians mummified their kings was hardly a secret. Putting all of this together, we can now clarify the Muslim argument. It goes something like this. During the reign of Pharaoh Merneptah of Egypt's 19th dynasty, Moses led the children out of Egypt. The aged, sickly Pharaoh, driven to frenzy by the insult, decided to personally hunt down the Israelites. Traveling on dry land between two walls of water, Pharaoh was suddenly swamped when the walls of water came crashing down on him. Just before drowning, Pharaoh repented of his sins and prayed to Allah, who... Uh, kindly responded, don't worry, you're going to die, but in the future I'm going to use your body as a really bad argument for Islam. Pharaoh then drowned. His body washed up on the shore and was quickly identified by some nearby Egyptians. They took his body back to Egypt and mummified it. The Israelites continued on to Palestine and upon arriving were amazed to find that they'd already been there for hundreds of years. 1,800 years later, Allah gave Muhammad an amazingly ambiguous verse of the Quran, and in 1896, Merneptah's body was discovered in the tomb of Amenhotep II, and Allah inspired Muslim apologists to mistranslate the Quran in order to make one of the worst arguments in history. Muslims now use this as one of their main proofs for the divine origin of the Quran. I see this everywhere. Now, I don't see any other way to put it. These examples are absolutely pathetic, and yet these are the examples being offered by Muslim apologists to support the Quran and Muhammad. As we'll see when we turn to arguments against Islam, in reality, Muhammad was extremely inaccurate uh, when he talked about history, and this is going to be the basis for an argument against Islam. So it's clear now that the argument from historical accuracy fails. The fourth argument we'll look at in this lecture is the argument from rapid growth. There are two uh, versions of this argument. The first argument goes something like this. Islam spread so rapidly in its early years, it must have come from God. This is obviously problematic since many other religions and other political systems also spread rapidly. Christianity spread rapidly. Communism spread far more rapidly than Islam ever has spread or ever will spread. Um, but I'd like to look at some, some of the reasons for the early spread of Islam, reasons that we find in the Quran. So we'll investigate these reasons for Islam's rapid spread and see whether there's anything miraculous here. Uh, reason number one, Muhammad's ability to inspire rage in his followers Historically, we know that some individuals were so impressed by Islam's ability to kill men, uh, Islam's ability to inspire people to kill without question, that some people converted to Islam. In Ibn Ishaq, we read, The apostle said, Kill any Jew that falls into your power. Thereupon, Muhayisa bin Masud leapt upon Ibn Sunayah a Jewish merchant with whom they had social and business relations, and killed him. 
Huayisa was not a Muslim at the time, though he was the elder brother. When Muhayisa killed him, Huayisa began to beat him, saying, You enemy of God, did you kill him when much of the fat on your belly comes from his wealth? Muhayisa answered, Had the one who ordered me to kill him, Muhammad, had the one who ordered me to kill him ordered me to kill you, I would have cut off your head. He said that this was the beginning of Huayisa's acceptance of Islam. The other replied, By God, if Muhammad had ordered you to kill me, would you have killed me? He said, Yes, by God. If he had ordered me to cut off your head, I would have done so. He exclaimed, By God, a religion which can bring you to do this is marvelous. And he became a Muslim. In this passage, Muhammad tells his followers, Kill any Jew that falls into your power. A Muslim acting on Muhammad's orders kills a Jewish merchant. The Muslim's brother doesn't understand how his brother could turn against a friend of the family uh, so quickly. The Muslim's response is that if Muhammad had commanded it, he would murder anyone, even his own family. And the brother is so impressed by this willingness to kill at the command of Muhammad, he becomes a Muslim. Is this a good reason to convert? I'm not sure that it is. Reason number two, patently false revelations. Many people were impressed when Muhammad spoke. He seemed to confidently proclaim everything as if he really knew what he was talking about, and he confidently answered difficult questions that no one else would answer. The problem is that many of his answers turned out to be completely false. Consider the following answers given by Muhammad. When Abdullah bin Salama heard of the arrival of the prophet at Medina, he came to him and said, I am asking you about three things which nobody knows but a prophet. What is the first portent of the hour? What will be the first meal taken by the people of paradise? Why does a child resemble its father, and why does it resemble its maternal uncle? Allah's, Allah's apostle said, Gabriel has just now told me of their answers. The first portent of the hour will be a fire that will bring together the people from the east to the west. The first meal of the people of paradise will be extra lobe of fish liver. As for, the, as for the resemblance of the child to its parents, if a man has sexual intercourse with his wife and gets discharged first, the child will resemble the father. And if the woman gets discharged first, the child will resemble her. On that, Abdullah bin Salam said, I testify that you are the apostle of Allah. Here, Muhammad is presented with three questions. One, what is a sign that the end is coming? Two, what will the first meal in heaven be? And three, how come a child sometimes looks like its father, but other times resembles its mother's family? Notice that Muhammad's answers to the first two questions, a great fire in the end times and fish liver for uh, the lunch in heaven, can't be tested. That is, there's no way to know whether they're true or false until Judgment Day actually gets here. Muhammad could just as easily have said that the sign of the final judgment will be that some frogs recite the Quran or that the last meat, I mean, the first meal of heaven will be uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. There's no way to test these things. And so we have no reason to think that Muhammad's first two answers are correct because we have no way to test their accuracy. Even so, Muhammad's third answer is testable. It can easily be tested in the light of modern science. So how does Muhammad's answer stand up to criticism? Not very well. 
Women don't have a discharge that contributes to the appearance of the offspring. They have an egg, but that's not what Muhammad is talking about here. Uh, further, a child's appearance has nothing to do with which parent has the first discharge. Muhammad's answer, as it turns out, is totally wrong. But notice that this answer won him an important Jewish convert who was amazed at Muhammad's brilliance. One of Muhammad's greatest strengths was that he had complete confidence in his own answers. Yet this confidence was misplaced. His assurance led others to believe that he must be correct. But as we've seen, he often wasn't. Reason three, boundless greed. Muhammad made an enticing guarantee to those who joined him in his struggle. In Sahih al-Bukhari 2786, Muhammad says, The example of a struggle in Allah's cause, and Allah knows better who really strives in his cause, is like a person who fasts and prays continuously. Allah guarantees that he will admit the struggler in his cause into paradise if he is killed, Otherwise, he will return him to his home safely with rewards and war booty. If a 7th century Arab rejected Islam, he was guaranteed nothing. He may be poor all his life and he wouldn't know what would happen to him after he died. But Muhammad guaranteed that if a person dies fighting Islam's enemies, he will enter paradise and get his virgins and that even if he survives, he will return home safely with rewards and war booty. Either way, pagans were much better off financially if they became Muslims. This promise of rewards and war booty was an important factor in the early spread of Islam. Indeed, using war booty to win converts was part of Muhammad's strategy. For example, when Muhammad was accused of distributing the spoils of war unevenly, he replied, are you disturbed in mind because of the good things of this life by which I win over a people that they may become Muslims while I entrust you to your Islam? In Sahih Muslim 23.13 we read, When the messenger of Allah conquered Hunayn, he distributed the booty, and he bestowed upon those whose hearts it was intended to win. Muhammad's promises of wealth were so great that Whenever difficulties arose, his followers sometimes complained that he wasn't delivering on all that he had promised. Here's what we read in Ibn Asak. The situation became serious and fear was everywhere. The enemy came at them from above and below until the believers imagined vain things. And disaffection was rife among the disaffected to the point that Matib bin Qusair, brother of uh, Bin Alf said, Muhammad used to promise us that we should eat the treasure of Khosros and Caesar. And today not one of us can feel safe in going to the bathroom. So for the early Muslims, the importance of wealth and war booty for conversion can hardly be overstated. Muhammad promised his followers that they would one day spend the treasures of Caesar. He distributed war booty after every military campaign, and he used his wealth to win converts. Many early Muslims embraced the religion with impure motives, and yet Muhammad saw nothing wrong with this. Reason four, fear of death. Muhammad's confidence and conviction certainly played a role in winning some people to Islam. However, he won few supporters when he relied on his sincerity and conviction to spread Islam. It's only when Muhammad turned to violence and oppression that we find large conversions to Islam. For instance, in our lecture on the argument from morality, we saw that a woman named Asma 
bint Marwan was assassinated for criticizing Islam. Ibn Ishaq reports, The day after bint Marwan was killed, the men of Bani Katma became Muslims because they saw the power of Islam. These people converted specifically because Muhammad was going around assassinating people who didn't convert. There are several other examples like this in the Muslim sources. History also shows that some people were directly threatened with death in the presence of Muhammad if they refused to convert. We read in Ibn Ishaq, Muhammad said, Woe to you, Abu Sufyan! Isn't it time that you recognize that I am God's apostle? He answered, As to that, I still have some doubt. I said to him, Submit and testify that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is the apostle of Allah before you lose your head. And so he did. Abu Sufyan doubted the prophethood of Muhammad, yet he was told to convert before he lost his head. Fully aware of the countless people who were losing their heads, uh, Abu Sufyan submitted to Islam. So, fear of death played a crucial role in converting people to Islam. Since Islam didn't really take root until Muhammad began spreading it through violence, and since Muslims were told to fight everyone who rejects Islam or refuses to pay the jizya, fear of death may have been the single most important factor in the early spread of Islam. So there are many reasons for the early spread of Islam, but they were all bad reasons to convert. There's nothing miraculous here. And so this argument, uh, this version of the argument, fails miserably. But there's another version of the argument, which is based not on the early spread of Islam, but the spread of Islam in the world today. But why is Islam spreading so rapidly in the world? Well, many Muslim countries are third world countries which are defined by high birth rates. The reason Islam is spreading rapidly is that Muslim birth rates are so high. According to some statistics, as far as conversions are concerned, Islam is actually losing ground in the world. But because Muslim birth rates are so high due to um, the third world status of many Muslim countries, uh, their numbers are still growing fairly rapidly. So how is this any sort of evidence that Islam is true? If it's evidence of anything, it's evidence that Islam tends to trap countries in the ninth century so that they can't advance like the rest of the world. I don't see that there's anything miraculous here. Now, there is a sense in which having babies is miraculous, uh, but it's not the sort of miracle that Muslims are talking about. So this argument fails. The final argument we'll consider is the argument from numerical Signs. The most common version of this argument in the past has been based on the number 19. If we put the argument into its appropriate logical form, it would go something like this. Premise 1. If a book contains many and varied instances of the number 19, it must be from God. Premise 2. The Quran contains many and varied instances of the number 19. Conclusion. Therefore, the Quran must be from God. Here I'm not going to deny the second premise that there are many and varied instances of the number 19 in the Quran, but I have to object to that first premise that if a book contains lots of instances of the number 19, it must be uh, divine inspiration. I don't understand how anyone could even uh, begin to defend such a statement. There doesn't seem any way to show that it's true. However, apart from 
the fact that there's no way to prove the first premise and therefore no way to show that the argument uh, succeeds in establishing the conclusion, there are some significant problems with this argument. Let's look at two. First, many instances of the number 19 in the Quran were, were the product of a creative mind. The man who popularized this argument was Rashad Khalifa. Muslims were really impressed with his claims until he started finding uh, predictions about himself in the Quran, and then, of course, Muslims uh, assassinated him for blasphemy. The way Khalifa came up with many instances of the number 19 was quite interesting. Sometimes it seemed like he just couldn't count. He said that the first surah was composed of 19 words when it's composed of 20 words. I'm glad someone actually bothered to count. Uh, Khalifa counted... Uh, Khalifa counted uh, 2,698 occurrences of the word Allah in the Quran, and this is 19 times 142 instances. But he didn't count the initial Bismillah, a fact he overlooked. So the correct count would be one higher, which isn't a multiple of 19. In order to find an amazing occurrence of the number 19 in Surah 9, he had to declare that the last two verses don't count. Now, there are tons of examples like this, and even Muslim apologists such as Shabir Ali now admit that Khalifa was deceptive and sloppy in his calculations. Second, as many people have shown, you can do this sort of thing with pretty much any book. Take the Bible, for instance. F.C. Payne reports the calculations of Ivan Panin. The first verse of the Bible reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse consists of seven Hebrew words and 28 letters. Seven times four is 28. There are three nouns, God, heavens, earth. Their total numerical value is 777, or seven times 111. The verb created has the value of 203, or seven times 29. The object is contained in the first three words with 14 letters. 14 is 7 times 2. The other four words contain the, um, the subject, also with 14 letters, 7 times 2 again. The Hebrew word for the two objects, the heavens and the earth, each contain 7 letters. The fourth and fifth words have 7 letters. The value of the first, middle, and last letters in the verb created is 133, or 7 times 19. The numeric value of the first and last letters of all the words is 1,393, or 7 times 199. And the value of the first and last letters of the verse is 497, 7 times 71. The Hebrew particle eth, with the article the used twice, has the value of 407, or 7 times 58. And the last letters of the first, of the first and last words equals 490, 7 times 70. In all, there are over 30 different numeric features related to seven in this verse. One verse. The odds against the above features occurring by chance are 33 trillion to one. But the number seven is also interwoven throughout the Bible. Creation took seven days. Naaman had to wash seven times in the Jordan to be cleansed from leprosy. The Israelites had to march around Jericho seven days and seven times on the seventh day. They had to set aside one day in seven for rest and worship. There was a seven-armed lampstand in the temple. In the last book, Revelation, we find mentioned seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven churches, seven stars, seven seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials, seven thunders, seven plagues, seven mountains, and seven kings. 
The tribulation period is to be seven years, being the last week of years of Daniel's 70 weeks. Beyond this, we know that the incubation period of the human embryo is 280 days, seven times 40. In Genesis, we're told that man was formed from the dust of the ground. The dust of the ground contains 14 elements, seven times two, and so does the human body. Every cell in the human body is renewed every seven years, and every seventh day, the pulse beats slower. In certain diseases, the critical days are the 7th, 14th, 21st, etc. And the female cycle is 28, or 7 times 4 days. Light is made up of 7 colors. The moon completes its orbit around the earth in 28 days, 7 times 4. And the earth is 49, 7 times 7, times larger than the moon. Amazing, isn't it? But who argues like this? Only Muslims. Not consistently, however. If they did, they'd have to accept the complete inspiration and reliability of the Bible. So this version of the argument fails, and Muslim apologists generally don't use it anymore. But we do encounter the argument uh, at the popular level. That is, it's still somewhat uh, common to hear a Muslim friend say that the number 19 shows that the Quran is the word of God. Uh, so it's good to keep some refutations in mind. There is another version of this argument however, which is gaining popularity. I even saw Shabir Ali defending this argument recently. The updated version of the argument is based on supposed numerical symmetries in the Quran, symmetries that are just too amazing to ignore. I'll quote a Muslim to show you what I mean. As Mazhar Qazi writes, the Quran states that there are seven heavens. This description appears in only seven surahs of the Quran. The Quran states that the number of months as prescribed by Allah is 12. The Arabic word for month is shahar. It is surprising to note that the word shahar appears in the Quran only 12 times. The Arabic word iman means faith. The opposite of this word is kufr, which means denial. The word iman appears in the Quran a total of 17 times. Surprisingly, the word kufr also appears in the Quran 17 times. The Arabic word malaika means angels, and the word shaitan refers to the devil. The two words in their attributes and roles are opposite to each other. The Quran has used the word malaika a total of 68 times. Surprisingly, the word shaitan also appears in the Quran a total of 68 times. Now, there are many other examples that Muslims use here. Uh, Muslims point out that the Arabic word for day occurs 365 times in the Quran. What a coincidence that there are 365 days in the year. Could all of these be coincidences? Well, let's look at two problems with this version of the argument. First, I wonder how seriously Muslims would take criticisms of Muhammad based on numerical symmetry. For instance, the word Muhammad occurs only four times in the Quran. Amazingly, the Arabic word for pigs also occurs four times. And the Arabic word kazab also occurs four times. It means liar. Is this a secret code telling us that Muhammad was a liar or a pig? I don't think so. I think it's a mere coincidence. Second, most of the examples used by Muslims are based on sheer deception. It's extremely difficult for most people to investigate this claim since it requires us to go line by line in the Arabic Quran adding up the words. So Muslims are able to uh, put out these claims knowing that few people can ever investigate them. 
Now, how are Muslim apologists guilty of deception here? Well, Arabic is an extremely complicated language, and there can be many different forms of a word. What Muslim apologists will do is selectively decide which form of the words they're going to count. For instance, are there, seven, are there 365 instances of the word day in the Quran? You have to be very creative to get that number because the word in all its forms actually occurs 475 times in the Quran. So the Muslim who came up with this argument said, all right, I'm going to count this form of the word. I'm not going to count that form of the word. And I'm going to count this form of the word selectively until he comes up with the number 365. This is simple deception. How about the word for month occurring 12 times? Well, in all its forms, it occurs 18 times. So Muslims have to pick and choose which forms of the word they're going to count. Some of the other examples are simply false. Kazi says that the word for angel and the word for devil each occur 68 times. This is false. The word for angel occurs 44 times, and the word devil occurs 77 times. Now, how desperate do Muslim apologists have to be that they're willing to engage in this sort of numerical manipulation and deception to defend their religion? A Muslim apologist knows that he can offer any argument for the Quran and that Muslims around the world will start using the argument without examining it. Then, even after the argument has been thoroughly refuted, most Muslims aren't aware of it, and so most Muslims continue to use the arguments. And this is just shocking. We're, what's not shocking is that this argument, like all the others we've examined, fails completely. Now, we've looked at five arguments in this lecture, and we've gone through several more arguments in previous lectures. I think we can learn at least four things from the arguments we've seen. First, Muslims will use anything, absolutely anything, to argue for Muhammad. It doesn't matter how much deception is involved. It doesn't matter how much the evidence is contrary to their claim. They will cling to anything as clear proof that Muhammad was a prophet. Second, the fact that Muslims have to resort to such an obviously flawed method of investigation, obviously flawed arguments, reveals something about the evidence they're dealing with. If Muslims had any good arguments, if there were anything that really showed that Muhammad was a prophet, surely Muslims would be using these good arguments. But as we've seen, there are none. Third, Muslim apologists rarely inform their listeners and their readers that there are numerous objections to their arguments. So if you pick up a uh, Muslim text, it will list these numerical um, symmetries and state it as a fact that this is indisputable. You pick up a Muslim text and it will say, no one disputes that the Quran has been perfectly preserved uh, since it was revealed to Muhammad. You pick up a text and say, yes, it's clear. Everyone agrees that the Pharaoh of the Exodus, his body was found, and that this is what the Quran predicts. They never, they never put all the objections to their arguments. And so uh, people who only buy the Muslim books, which would be many Muslims, uh, never have access and never realize that these arguments are horribly, horribly flawed. Finally, we should realize that checking the facts is important, especially when truth claims are involved. And this goes for Christian arguments as well. Um, I've seen bad arguments for Christianity. The point is, as Christians, we don't have to use bad arguments because we do have good arguments. Uh, with these things in mind, we should also remember that most of the Muslims who uh, appeal to these sorts of arguments aren't trying 
to deliberately deceive us. Most Muslims really believe that the evidence confirms their religion because they haven't seriously investigated the arguments that are handed down to them and, th- and that they accept because they trust uh, their leaders. So Muslims really are convinced that Muhammad was a prophet and that this evidence is good. Our job is to point out the flaws and to pray that Muslims will see their religion for what it is.